just a moment, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 4, but before we do this morning, I want us to just take some time and pray. Uh, if you're new here, this is not always what we do. So I want us to spend some time praying, and before we do, I want us to read scripture from 1 Timothy chapter 2. It says this, first of all then, I urge that supplications prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So I want us to spend some time praying. There's a lot of conflict going on, and if you open any social media or turn on the television this week, it just feels like it's crowding everything. Like all of our vision is crowded by conflict. And so I want us to spend some time praying for those uh, in Ukraine, maybe people that are experiencing persecution and specifically that are um, hiding or running for their lives or defending their freedom. And so I want us to just pause and acknowledge that this is existing and that those uh, Christians that are in this space are our brothers and sisters, that we're related to them through what Christ has done for us. And so let's just bow together, and I'll prompt you guys with some things to pray for, and then we'll turn our hearts towards God's Word in Genesis chapter 4. First, I just want you to imagine uh, the decision have had to be made over the last several weeks for families that either have chosen to stay or flee for their safety. And I want us to give thanksgiving for the security that we experience and then acknowledge that these huge decisions that have to be made are just a great pressure on everyone there. Just ask God to be a comfort for his peace to surround those that belong to him. Father, we lift up those families that are suffering and faced with unimaginable decisions over the last few weeks. And we just bring them before you and acknowledge that you see their needs even before we ask for them. Also, for the needs that are represented in this room, God, we bring them to you. Maybe we don't live in a war-torn city, but maybe our homes feel the same way. So, Father, we bring all of those needs, all the conflicts before you and ask for you to be our peace. Now, I want you to spend some time just lifting up leaders, not just of households, but government leaders, people that are in authority, that are not just making decisions for themselves, but for everyone in their city, in their area, in their region, for people that will die for the sake of whatever decisions they make. Just lift them up. Pray for those in authority.
Father, we really just pray and lift up those that are in charge right now. From the worst to the most uh, commendable, Father, we know that ultimately you take the hearts of kings and leaders and you shape them like a river in your hands. You hold all of it. You're the Lord over all. There's no square inch of this great earth that's not under your command. And so today we just acknowledge your kingship, that you hold all things together. And we pray for those that are in power, Father. I pray that you'd soften hearts, that those that are stubborn, that you would crush even their pride. You'd bring them before your throne. Lord, those that feel so far from being reconciled to you, pray that you would do what only you can do and change hearts and lives. Pray that you'd work in a significant way to preserve those who belong to you, to convert those who do not, and to preserve your justice in this world. Father, we know that injustice cries out before you. You hear it before we even perk up our ears or pay attention to it. So I pray that you'd give us a sense of your heart, that you're much more concerned than even we could be with all the loss, with all that feels unfair. I pray that you'd help us to get a glimpse of what you see when you look at this earth for the sake of your name, Lord Jesus. And I pray that as we turn our hearts now from praying for the world and praying for those in this room that maybe don't know you, I pray that when we open up the scriptures today, that you would have your way with us, that you'd both confront us and comfort us with your gospel. And I pray this for the sake of your name, Jesus. Amen. All right. Now, if... You're new in this room today. I especially want to welcome you. We've prayed for you today. We've prayed that this time would be beneficial for everyone here, not just if you're new. If you are new, there's a card in the seat back in front of you. We'd love for you to grab it, fill it out, and you can drop it in the give boxes on your way out to the right and to the left of the doors. We promise to contact you in a respectful way. Um, Today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 4. Now this is week 8 for us in the book of Genesis. And it's such an important book in God's Word. It's important for everyone who's a believer because it kind of lays the foundation for what our worldview would be, what we believe about what's going on. This answers today. I didn't plan this. (laughs) I couldn't have known this. But this answers so many of the questions that maybe we bring into the, the room about what in the world should we think about war? What's the reason for all of this? How did we get to this point? So let's ask God to speak to us again as we read through his word, starting in chapter 1, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 1. It's going to be on the screen. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, 
But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and he, his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And if you're reading along in God's Word, we're going to skip on down to chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, I just ask once again that you'd speak to us through this, your word. As I've prayed this week, Lord, that you would use this passage to both confront us and comfort us with promises of your mercy. I pray that we'd be able to see our own stories in these lives here. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, this chapter reads a little bit something like a transcript from Dateline, okay? The first murder, the first human lie to God, it reads like a transcript, right? You're reading it going, I'm glad this is not me. And I, I'm really pretty sure that that's the reason that we like shows like Dateline, that we can look at it and say, I'm so glad that my life is not quite as messed up as these crazy people, okay? I'm so glad. But one of the dangers of reading this chapter and seeing that, oh my goodness, things are going crazy, is that we'll read it without thinking of ourselves as we read it. Or if we do think of ourselves, we love to think of ourselves as Abel, the brother that got smoked by his brother, okay? We want to be the one that's the victim. We want to be the one who brought the good offering. And so as we read it, there's so many ways that we're bringing that question. How do I bring the better offering? How do I bring this offering before God? And I'm not sure that that's the only or even primary burden of this text. There's a lot of things going on. Lots of things. Some that are more challenging than others, more comforting than others. And I want to point out a few things, okay? In my limited scope of time, 
of what's going on. First, I want to look at God's favor in this passage. Two brothers have come to him to worship. They're bringing an offering. And there's a degree to which the whole context of what unfolds is worship, okay? It's in the context of worship. One's tilled the ground. The other one has exercised the dominion that God himself has given him over the sheep of the field. And sacrificially, they both bring an offering. Cain brings an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel brings an offering of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions, richness, rich food. That's what we should read in that. Now, there's rivers of ink that's been spilt over what the difference is, okay? But I really believe the point of the story isn't to seek for us to bring some kind of better offering. There is some of that. But to rise and observe what Cain is, what happens in Cain's life after God gives favor to one and for some reason not primarily in this passage, does not have favor on the other. Now, there's some potential reasons that, that would be worthy for us to consider. First fruits instead of first fruits, okay? So he's saying he brought some offering. It wasn't his first fruits. And they're able, he brings the firstborn and the fat, the richest and best portion. So you would look at maybe the external degree to which one of them is bringing something better than the other one. Maybe God was more pleased with something that, that brought blood sacrifice. Both the man and, and both men were offering something to God, and for whatever reason, God regarded one and not the other. And it's not until Hebrews that we, we get to read and see, okay, there's a real distinction, not in what they brought, but how this offering was brought before him. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says this. As it goes through the hall of faith, it's naming all these people that have brought offerings of faith. And, and Abel, by faith, offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. And God commended him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. In other words, he's saying in Hebrews, look, you don't have to wonder about which gift was better. Behind the gift was a motivation. Abel brought his gift in a certain way. He brought it with faith, by faith. And throughout God's word, there's only one way in which God commends the people before him. The only way to please God is by faith. And now we see that Abel's offering was better for that reason, because he brought it before God with faith. And this, this faith was the only thing that commended him to God. It's a difficult lesson from the gospel because God is just, and his justice is always working in alignment with all that he knows, all that he sees. And anytime God works in a way that's different than how we desire, this can be perplexing. We're going, wait a minute. Why did he somehow like Abel's offering better than my offering? They both brought them. They both made a sacrifice. You kind of get this glimpse that Cain's offering was desiring some type of regard that God would give him, some type of acceptance. God asked him the question, okay, so if you don't continue in this, if you, if you do well, will you not be accepted? But these kinds of stories help to continually readjust our expectations that we place on God. Maybe some of you come into this room today and you're like, coming here because you want good things from God, Okay. Maybe, I mean, you might as well have brought a heifer into the room, right? To bring some sacrifice to say, I want you to be pleased with me, God. And so I'm bringing this to you, and I'd like for you to, to bless me because of it. And we get this clarity on why Abel's offering was accepted and 
hearted. It was because of his faith. He believed something, and it was an expression of his belief. Luther would say it's not to be doubted that Cain conducted himself as hypocrites accustomedly do. Namely, he wished to appease God. He wanted somehow for his offering to make God happy as one discharging a debt by external sacrifices without the least intention of dedicating himself to God. But this is true worship, to offer ourselves as spiritual sacrifices. So two offerings, one's favored, one's regarded, one not. The first section of the story, the point isn't the difference of the sacrifice, but how in the world did this happen? We learn later it's because of faith. So what do we do with this question of how come we both bring offerings and one person is regarded and one person isn't? How do we deal with God when we want to see ourselves as rightfully deserving God's favor, but it seems like it's somehow falling on someone else? You ever looked around and thought, why is life so easy for this person? Why does it seem like they have this incredible blessing over them? And what is the response to that? Well, we look at Cain's response to this reality in Genesis 4 or 5. It says this, But for Cain, his offering had no regard, so Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Somehow, Cain is able to tell that God likes Abel's offering, and he's upset about it. Two responses to this. He gets mad, and he gets sad. He's like the psalmist in Psalm 73. He envies what's going on for him. You guys know this psalm? He said, I envied the arrogant because it seems like they're free from my burden. Have you ever looked around you and felt that? Maybe even within your home that you see something that seems terribly unfair with a sibling or a spouse. Somebody's enjoying more their fair share of favor than you are. And you look around you and say, this does not seem right. Now, this is obvious that this will kill our joy. Teddy Roosevelt said, comparison's the enemy of joy. But why is that? Why is it that always we compare ourselves and immediately we're robbed of all the joy? And it doesn't really say that he's comparing, but it's implied because he's mad and then biblical story grows more and more complex. First two chapters, you got a perfect world and God saying, it's very good. Chapter three, you got an incredible enemy that's lying to them, trying to deceive them. And now the story gets much more complex. You don't just have this enemy outside of you. God begins to speak about a way in which there's some other agency at play here. And he begins to address both his anger and his disappointment. And it's in this place that God speaks a warning. Look at Genesis 4, 6. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So in God's compassion, he comes and does some things before the great sin of murder has happened. He begins by asking him a couple questions. Why are you angry? Why is your face falling? The burden of the text is more so, how do we deal with this reality when things feel unfair for us? We should be warned. The heart behind the offering, yes, is more important, but the burden of this text, I believe, is how does this, this comparison translate in our relationships? When we get downcast and angry and bitter, what do we do with it? And God's warning in these questions is full of hope. He says this, if you do well, He's not lying to Cain. 
He's not making something up that one day maybe he could, some things could change about his circumstance. He sees that in his face being fallen, Cain is saying, nothing is ever going to be different for me. It's always going to be this way. I'm always going to be sad because my brother's always going to have it better than me. So God speaks this hope into him in this moment. and says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? God's word both challenges his emotions not to rule over him. Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? He also says, if you do well, there's hope. And in the midst of this warning, he moves from there's hope to you need to beware. There's something else with agency. And he describes this thing called sin. This is the first time that sin is ever mentioned in the Bible. Now, we know that that's what happened with Adam and Eve when they disobey God. But immediately, suddenly, there's something new on the stage. First, you got Adam and Eve taking the fruit and disobedience and the serpent. And now there's this thing called sin. Now, there's things in this passage, and there's three ways that God describes it. He says this, sin is crouching at the door. That's the first phrase he uses to describe it. It's this personification, like a creature sitting right outside your door, waiting waiting for you to come out and for it to rule over you. And then he says this, its desire is contrary to you. There's a way in which it's opposed to you. This continued personification, its desire is against you. You might want to cooperate with it, but in the end, the result is going to be that it's contrary to what you actually need and desire for your life. The end result is going to be contrary to you. Or as Spurgeon put it, there's a deceitfulness of sin. There's a way in which it's out to trick us. And then the third thing, he says, you've got to rule over it. Now, this is part of their commendation from God that he's given them dominion over all the earth. And he said, this is now something that's happened because of sin entering the world. Now you're going to have to rule over it. You're going to have to use your dominion in the same way that you would tame some kind of wild animal. There's something out to get you. And these three phrases we learn a lot about the enemy, not outside of us, but that's lurking at the door right here next to us. Now, uh, maybe you're not familiar with lots of catechisms. Sometimes they're helpful to us. The Westminster Catechism, as the shorter, asks this question, what is sin? And it answers it with this, sin is any lack of of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Now, in other words, it's saying any time that we fail to meet God's law or reject God's law, active or passive against the law of God, this is what sin is. That's how we understand it. And this conversation with God, he's saying this idea of sin is lurking at the door. Now, we don't really like to think about sins that much. Like, it's not a pop culture thing for us to just <laughs> be aware of. But it's helpful for us to understand that in the first conversation where God is warning about what could happen, he's saying, I need you to know that there's something out to get you, and he describes sin. R.C. Sproul says it this way. In the very least, in the least transgression, or that's another word for sin, I set myself above the authority of God doing insult to his majesty, his holiness, and his sovereign right to govern me. Sin is a revolutionary act in which the sinner seeks to depose God from his throne. Sin is a presumption of supreme arrogance in that the creature vaunts his own wisdom above that of creature, creator, challenging divine omnipotence with human impotence and seeks to usurp the rightful authority of the cosmic Lord. Lots of big words, but a beautiful explanation. 
basically, we don't like there to be a king. That's the reality. We want to be king. And in any, any sin, from the most small gossip morsel that we participate in, to judging people, well, all of these things would be a rejection of God's lordship over us. So I'm not sure if Cain was, just wasn't listening, wasn't ready with his anger to listen to God, but bad things happened after God warns him. Look at verse 9. He moves from warning to confrontation. Cain takes him out in the field. He kills him, and the Lord says to Cain, where's your brother? Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? So I want to make a couple observations about God's confrontation of Cain. The first question he asks is this, where is he? He doesn't say, what have you done? Like he said to Adam and Eve, but in a similar way, he begins to ask him some questions. He gives him this opportunity to come forward and say, yep, I did a bad thing, God. But instead of saying, yes, I've done a bad thing, Cain lies. It's the first one of humans. Satan had lied to the humans. But this is the first time that we see someone blatantly looking at God and saying, I don't know. I have no idea. And not only does he lie to God, he avoids and pushes the responsibility away. It sound familiar to a couple weeks ago? He pushes it away. He says, am I my brother's keeper? How would I know what's going on with him? Not only does he say, I don't have any responsibility over him. I don't have any responsibility for his death. I'm not responsible for knowing where he's at. He's saying, I'm not in charge of his well-being. We see God's image-bearing design of humanity just reversing and getting further and further. And the Lord God said in Genesis 4.10, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. His cries for justice are coming to God. I want to point out a few things about God's confrontation of him. First, that these cries for justice came to God. His eyes were, his eyes were open to them. His ears were open to this reality that there was injustice long before he confronted Cain with his brother. Like from the moment that it happened, God knew it. There's nothing hidden from his sight. Nothing. And from this place of knowing and seeing, he punishes and gives consequence to the sin. He says to him, now you're cursed from the ground. Before, the ground was cursed. Now he's being cursed from the ground. There's like a continuation of the curse. Now you're going to be a fugitive and a wanderer. And Cain suddenly believes that his punishment is way too great. This is too much for me, God. This is too much. Now, everywhere I go, I'm definitely going to be a fugitive and a wanderer, but somebody's going to find me and they're going to kill me. And God says, no, they're not. I'm going to put a mark on you. Nobody knows what this is. Nobody knows what it looks like. But he puts a mark on him so that he would be preserved. Isn't that interesting? Instead of just bringing complete vengeance for his brother, he says, no, no, we're not going to have anybody have vengeance on you. We're not going to have that. But if someone takes vengeance on you, It'll be sevenfold on them. And this was a mercy from God. He's preserving Cain's life. He speaks about the potential of vengeance because he knew that someone would be trying to accomplish, accomplish revenge. From that point forward, with every single beef, that's our disposition. We weren't made for that. 
But because of sin, we're disposed towards, we're, we have an inclination towards revenge. The sin of Cain is this, that he would not only bring this hypocritical offering in worship, but he would constantly look around him and say, this is not fair. And we see it in his response to God's judgment over him. He says, no, it's not fair that God received his, he gave him favor. It's not fair that he would give me punishment. Cain is constantly saying, it's not fair. Now, and before we try to figure out how to avoid being Cain, okay, and there's, there's some good reasons to avoid. In fact, in the New Testament, there's a couple places where it's like, don't be like Cain. You shouldn't have the sin of Cain. Don't be like him. But as we try to figure out how we might avoid being Cain, I think it's important for us to understand that, that even if we haven't killed our brother, okay, there's lots, and way, lots of ways that we've experienced the same kinds of anger and frustration and our faces falling, saying to God, this isn't fair. We know very well what that's like. And all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, hey, here's the rules, okay? But then he would raise them to basically make it clear that everyone was guilty. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, he's, he's in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, you've heard it said. Now, over and over, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is saying, you've heard it said this, but it's actually this. It's actually more intense. You've heard it said, it says this in chapter 5, verse 21. You've heard it said that those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering a gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. It's almost like a reversal of the passage in Genesis 4. It ends with an offering, but it begins with this idea of anger. You've heard it said that, yes, you shouldn't murder everybody, and no one's going, that's shocking. We can't believe that this teacher has spaketh like this. But then he, he says, no, this is different. I'll tell you, God can see through what we're not doing to the heart of what we would do if we were unleashed. He can see it so clearly. So God's confrontation of Cain, he's looking at him and his judgment of him, he's saying, I know what you're capable of. And then he sees it played out. And in the same way, he looks at all of us as we bring our offerings to him. And as we worship him, he sees what we're capable of. And he says, be careful. Do you do well to be angry? Do you do well? Why is your face fallen? And in this, we see that God's not just looking for restraint. He's looking for something else. There's an attitude of our hearts of generosity. He can see all of it. He sees the anger with our coworker. He sees our anger with our kids. He sees the frustration with our neighbors, all of it. He sees the intention of our hearts. And he's able to pierce through the marrow and all of it. The word is clear to, that Jesus sees perfectly. In all the anger that we think no one else would see, or all the frustration, and all those intentions, he's saying, I'd much prefer you love one another than come and try to worship me with some offering. Ultimately, Jesus is saying, look, I'm not, I'm not interested in you bringing some gift to me. The ultimate worship would be that you 
bear my image in the way that you were designed to. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to apologize for something you didn't do. It doesn't mean that you have to express something that bothers you about every person that bothers you. That's not what I'm saying. But it does mean that before we look at Cain and Abel kind of like a dateline story, most of, us, most of us in this room have at least been close to the kind of guilt that Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? Most of us experienced that kind of hatred at some point or another, or that kind of frustration. And we get the picture before the end of this passage that the world just continues to get darker and darker. This sounds really hopeless. Listen, we're going into Lent, okay? It's just going to be a dark season here for a minute. Let's just sit in it. It gets darker. He has a grandkid who invents weapons, you know? And he's like, let's have weapons from here on out. Lamech, his grandson, says, hey, if Gain's vengeance is seven times, mine is 70 times seven. Shameless killing. Look, he's saying, uh, you can't kill Cain. But later, Lamech, his grandson, is saying, if you offend me, I'll kill you. That's how he describes himself. With boasting. This is not just killing. It's like just public poems singing a song of his vengeance. So over the last week or so, I've been trying to brush up on my history. Casey and I have been trying to understand this whole conflict between Ukraine and Russia. Right? Like, we're just trying to figure out, okay, now when did this happen? And when did the USSR form? And when did they go bankrupt? And we're trying to piece together all the timeline, right? And I'm sure that many of you are like, okay, what's happening in the world? <laughs> like, we know the sound bites. We're trying to piece it together. And there's one thing that I want you to understand that underneath our doctrine of how the world works, this is the foundation of how we understand what's happening, okay? This passage is what we go to to say, okay, why is the world so messed up? Why is it like this? Because all of us, maybe we haven't been in like personal war with someone, but we've experienced the kind of conflict that is being described here. We've experienced it. So, yeah, like one of the applications could be don't sin the sin of Cain, right? But I want to bring us a couple of things that I would say are, are in this text, maybe not obvious, but there's a, pay, a place in which God would bring us comfort in the midst of conflict. There's five ways that I can see God potentially offering us some sense of comfort, comfort in the conflict. The first one is this. Not all conflict is bad, but you weren't made for it. It's not what you were made for. In fact, it's, it's right off the cuff of seeing how God made the world. They're right in his image. They're in his presence and with each of these things, they're kicked out of the garden. They're settling the east of Eden. They're basically getting further and further away from what they were designed to be. And so the first comfort that I would have for us is we weren't made for this. It's not what we were made for. We were made for greater unity and co cooperation. And in the midst of whatever frustration you have with that and division, you can look at all of it and say, this is not what I was designed for. It's not what we were made for. Not for the sake of being contentious with one another. There's so many ways we feel that, uh, that it feels like everyone's out for their own survival. I was going back through some Solzhenitsyn and Alexander, and he he's describing in the Gulag Archipelago what it was like to be in a concentration camp of sorts 
in the Soviet Union. And he said this, the conclusion is this, survive to reach it, survive at any price. This is simply a turn of phrase, a sort of habit speech at any price. But then the words well up with their full meaning and an awesome vow takes shape to survive at any price. And whoever takes that vow, whoever does not blink before its crimson burst, allows his own misfortune to overshadow both the entire common misfortune and the whole world. This is the great fork of camp life. From this point, the roads go to the right and to the left. One of them will rise and the other will descend. If you go to the right, you lose your life. If you go to the left, you lose your conscience. In other words, we have this terrible choice, and it's not what we were made for, to choose our life or our conscience. And in so many ways, it's like, how can we just snuff out the evil, right? Like, how can we just get away from it? He goes on to say, in another one of his writings, he says, it's only so simple. If there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and if it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them, but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Now, because this is true in every heart, because of sin in the world, we have this great consequence that that we're in the midst of a conflict right now. And one of the comforts for us is that we were not made for conflict. And so when you feel uncomfortable in the midst of it, I want to remind you, you weren't made for this. The second thing is that God still warns us. The same way that he came to Abel and said, why are you angry? Why are you frustrated? Before you've acted out on your sin, he's still in the business of warning us if we take heed to him. So if you're frustrated today, there is not just only this active enemy who's seeking to deceive us. God begins to describe in this chapter another kind of enemy, and it's called sin. He personifies it. If you don't do well, this is the consequence. It's crouching at the door seeking someone to devour. John Owen said this, if you, do you mortify? He's talking about his sin. Do you kill your sin? Are you like leaving it at the front door like a pet? Always at it whilst you live. That's how he says we should be. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be actively mortifying your sin and saying, I don't want any part of that. Or it will be killing you. Its desire is contrary to you. It's lurking at the door, waiting for a vulnerable moment when you're angry and frustrated so it can take advantage of you. God is still in the business of warning us. And then practically, this is just a, a practical application of this text. Uh, Beware when he warns you about comparing yourself to others. It's only by faith that he would receive us. It's not by some works that you could put and stack up next to the people next to you and say, well, at least I'm not, or at least I'm better than. That's a great comfort to us, that he basically has just commanded us to follow him by faith, to just follow him. There's this conversation after Peter has denied the Lord three times, Jesus raises from the dead. He meets them on the seashore. He feeds them breakfast, and he has this conversation with Peter. And three times he asks him, do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me more than these? And he says, then feed my sheep, because you're going someplace that you're not going to want to go. 
And in the midst of this confrontation where he's kind of restoring himself to Peter, he's asking him, like, well, do you really love me? After Peter's denied him, Peter looks over at John and he's like, what about John? What about him? And Peter says this. I mean, Jesus says this to him. If it's my will that he return until that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Look, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that all of the comparison and jealousy and frustration about who gets more favor and who gets less, it will kill everything about you pursuing Christ. His word to us today is just to follow him. Follow him by faith. And I, I don't think we got any killers in the room. Just a guess. But we can become experts of assassinating one another's character. We can. Look, I, I can see all the ways that some morsel, some tasty morsel of gossip can be swallowed or shared, especially in the church. It doesn't even have to be explicit. It can be like, pray for this person. You don't need to know what's going on with them. Just leaving all of us to the worst of our imagination. Scott Saul says this about gossip. Gossip is the pornography of the mouth, a cheap thrill that offers zero commitment to the person being objectified. I don't know who that's for, but I felt like I should throw it in there. It's just true. There's so many ways that we would not want other people's good because of this same kind of conflict. God's invitation to us is to follow me. See, not only gives us a promise. This isn't what we're made for. He still warns us. He still corrects us too. I wonder with that quote, who he would ask you about. You know when Jesus, or when God speaks to Cain, he says, where's your brother Abel? And you're going, I'm not responsible for him. I wonder who he would ask us about today. Who would he ask us about and say, what about this person? That we'd say, I'm not responsible for them. They are not my thing. Who is that? Maybe there's a specific person that God's bringing to mind. And then uh, the fourth thing I would say is this. God keeps his promise. Thank God. He keeps so many practical things here, but he keeps his promise. That's why we read chapter 5, verse 1, because eventually there's another kid born. His name is Seth. And Seth, through Seth comes the promised one that was promised in Genesis 3.15 that he would one day come and crush the head of the serpent. The family line wasn't over. The promise that had happened earlier is still going to come to pass. It's still in play. So here's the comfort. God still keeps his promises. He's still a great deliverer. And then the last one is this. Christ's blood speaks a better word. In Hebrews chapter 12 Verse 24, it says this, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In other words, the first martyr that everyone's looking at in this story going, I hope I'm like Abel. I hope I'm like Abel. There's a better one. His name is Jesus. And his blood speaks a better word than all the injustice that has ever existed in this world. In all the ways that God has passed over sins previously committed and given us mercy. It is because of the blood of his new covenant. And so theologically, this is what that means. The curse that came about in this place, Jesus took it on himself in all the ways that Cain says, I'm going to be a restless wanderer. Jesus said, foxes have holes. <laughs> Birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. 
he takes the curse. Cain who says, whoever's going to find me is going to kill me. And Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, is like, it's me. Take me. Cain says, this is way too much for me. I cannot handle it. And Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. And he took all of the burden of all of the curse on himself for everyone who believes. And so today, I want us to close with this prayer. Now, we typically take communion together. If you have communion, you're welcome to grab it and take it any point from this point forward. But we're not going to take it together today. I want us to pray this liturgy together that God would unite us, that he'd reconcile us to one another. I'm going to read this first point. And in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to read aloud with me. How has God made us holy and triune God? You've existed for all eternity in perfect, loving, intimate communion. Your loving unity has overflowed in your creation, being made in your image and likeness. We were made to enjoy a similar communion with one another. Let's make this confession together. Pray this aloud with me. Through division, jealousy, and selfishness, our sin and shame divide us from one another. With skepticism, disappointment, and deception, our enemy fights to keep us disconnected. But you have provided the way for us. Say it with me. Once we were not a people, but you invite us to come and be your people, reconciled to you through the cross, reconciled to your people through your sacrifice, united to you and to one another by your grace. To compare and covet, to bear grudges, look judgment on one another, to assume the worst, to gossip, withhold forgiveness is the way of the world. It bears no resemblance to you. But you welcome us while we are still enemies. Say it with me. You love us while we despise you. You forgive us before we understand our offense. And you're inviting us to do the same with one another. You're transforming how we relate to one another. Clothe us with your compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience that we may pursue one another as you have pursued us. Care for one another as you have cared for us. Love one another as you have loved us. Let us be known by our love and may others witness your power because of the relationships in your church. Amen. Let's stand up and sing together.